Welcome to the One Salty Great Podcast, the podcast where we talk about all those salty topics that people don't want to discuss. I'm your host, Ro. And I'm Phil. And we hope you enjoy. Hello and welcome back to Season 2, Episode 2 of the One Salty Great Podcast. And today we are joined with a very good friend of ours, Gubsy Malone, is what we like to call him. So... Do you want to introduce yourself, Gubs? Nice, nice uh, to see you, everyone. Nice, uh, good time lockdown. Yeah, we are all socially. We're not even in the <laughs> same house. Um, we so we are following local guidelines and everything. So, fear not. But on today's episode, we are going to talk about a very underspoken about topic, in my opinion, which is. The current situation with farmers' rights, Indian government, and everything around the political situation that is going on at the moment. So, without further ado, let's get straight into it. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So, what what I know is um, that India, uh, the government, uh, has recently passed three laws regarding um, farmers' um, ability to sell as well as uh, being open to the free market. Um, so obviously we have, you know, Gurbir join us today to explain these laws in more detail and the impact that it's having on the current climate. And uh, furthermore, we're going to discuss the human rights abuse that is going on. And uh, we want to discuss also the hypocrisy of, you know, India calling themselves a democratic state that has world's biggest, the world's yeah. biggest. Um, it's it's and, yeah. and we also want to talk about the social media impact and what's going on so so could be could you kick off please by saying us what what's going on what are these laws what's what's happening sure so um as you've been aware with the recent news coverage there has been long-going peaceful protest um, regarding the advocation of protection of the rights of farming which is an essential um for many many people's livelihoods. This is a national movement stretching from Punjab to Kerala. The protests are against laws hastily passed without due deliberation in September 2020. The concerns of the farmers are that the dismantling of the minimum support price system, which would allow big corporations to dictate the terms to smaller farmers who have less bargaining power, this will eventually lead to a race to the bottom where farmers will end up getting less for their crops and not being able to have the same negotiating power as these large international corporate um, organisations. The disbanding of the Mundi system resulting in farmers not being guaranteed an assured price for their crops. The undoing of aritias or commissioning agents who also pitch in with loans for farmers and they will also be will be run out of business. The long-term concern for these farmers are that these additional pressures will end up bankrupting them further, their land being sold and most likely be monopolised for corporate industrial farming. This is seen as a matter of life and death for these farmers, impacting nearly half of India's workforce who rely on, agri- on the agricultural sector, the majority relating to smallhold farms. Despite markedly peaceful protests, the government has responded with state-sanctioned violence, including the use of tear gas, water cannons, mass arrests and indefinite detention. Hundreds of farmers have been injured due to state violence and some have lost their lives. Protest sites have been set up around Delhi. The state has responded by cutting water, aid and electricity. Internet services have also been strategically suspended to silence any dissent. Media outlets have been censored and threatened. Protesters, activists, journalists have all been arrested, assaulted, held in indefinite detention with claims of the use of torture on some of those held in detention. As we were going to discuss, um, India claims itself to be the largest democracy of the world. It is a member of the UN and is subject to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. So the first sort of aspect I want to discuss with everyone is the element of freedom, freedom of speech. This has been a um, topic of sort of recent concern um, within the West. Um, sort of if you listen to anything such as like Pierce Morgan, the, the freedom he always like complains about transgender rights by not being able to use certain words. However, in the sort of wider context, um, 
this is a real concern for sort of real freedoms um, within the Indian state. So just talking about the um, actual right itself, under the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, Article 19 states, everyone has the right to freedom of opinion and expression. The right includes freedom to hold opinions without interference and to seek, receive and impart information and ideas through any media and regardless on frontiers. This right is also protected by the Indian Constitution. The right to freedom, Article 19, where all citizens have the right to freedom of expression and speech, to assemble peacefully and without arms, to form associations or unions, and to move freely throughout the territory of India. So my first sort of thoughts on this for discussion are um, the celebrities' um, response to, to this movement, where people like Rihanna have tweeted about awareness of of these farmers how would you say the indian state has really responded to this well i was going to say first big up rihanna <laughs> it's um i think she was she was the first person was it her and then greta thunberg they were the first two people i want to say who got involved in publicizing it didn't they and this is only in february Bear in mind the laws and the protests were starting in, yes, would you say September? Yes, they they added sort of momentum throughout the past few months. For the past three months, it's really, really grown. Yeah, because I've only heard about it for the past three months, obviously. And then since then, I've not seen anyone really try, drum up any form of, uh, how would you say it? Oh, you're not, I'm not seeing anyone mm. drive any interest in it or try and push this movement to try and support those people because what I don't think what people don't really understand from it is because there's a lot of big <laughs> words that you were using Gubs. there was <laughs> there's a lot to take in in that first opening bit that you were, you were talking about what people were failing to understand is the taking or you, you've effectively taken away someone's minimum wage is what you've got to think about it so if you're in the UK if you've taken off the UK minimum wage, which is your standard of living, your minimum standard of living, how is that going to affect you? It's going to put you in poverty. It's going to cause hardship. And it's you wouldn't do it, would you? It and doesn't make any sense about, whatsoever. Um, in a sort of free market um, context is that people always advocate that you should get up and use your hands and work for a living and earn your own bread. And what's better than earning your own bread than making your own bread? However, what you have to think about is these people um, as individuals, sort of small business owners, how can they compete with these large multi-corporates? Well, the way they they can in a sort of, in a just society is having these protections, these regulations to ensure that the big man, like in a school scenario, like the big bully can't use his power to oppress or show his dominance over the smaller person. So what these laws sort of do is sort of give them the sort of equal bargaining position to ensure that people can actually use their hands, they can stay, they can actually earn their own money. But by taking away these uh, protections, what you're essentially doing is allowing those people with, with the bigger pockets to use their influence on the market and squeeze these people out out of out of um, their livelihoods and in the longer term I'd, i can see that because what what these farmers have um compared to other countries they have land and it's their land they they work on it they work they earn from it they rely on it and by selling this land and getting rid of these individual owners making people losing their land it can be monopolized and turned into say factories. And then these same workers would then have to rely on the work from those factories and have less less power to sort of better themselves. Yeah, the, the, these laws um, that have been introduced, they only seem to really benefit um, farmers that have, you know, over 50, 100 acres of land. Um, you know, I've read reports that majority of the farmers um, only own only own two, three acres. Um, and again, like you said, it just it just creates this um, ability for these companies to come in and cause 
a monopolization of these bigger farmers to buy up smaller land and then you know cornering the market essentially and you know a lot of people don't realize that you know the the, the, the livelihood of like you said half the workforce is within agriculture um Sorry, uh, I, I was just going to add then what you need to think of in the long term is you may think, well, sure, like um, you want to make the things more efficient, right? You'd you'd say these little farmers, they 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 can't make things as quickly as these big corporations. They've got the workforce, they've got the people. However, what you have to think about is in the long term, if you squeeze every competitor out of the market, you monopolize those you are um, you are sort of bound to this one corporation and what this corporation can then decide is that they're going to lower their standards they're not going to provide you with certain things that they're going to then increase their prices because where where else are you going to go and the fact is food is a necessity for everyone so if only one supplier is providing you with food and um, they this the whole state because remember india is a, a land of one billion people which also does feed the international community as well with some of their products if you're dictated with just one company where else are you going to turn and that's a real concern for every person this is not just sort of a sort of free market capitalist thing it's a real concern for sort of democracy and for freedom yeah because we, we have um regulations within this country and I think they did they did the same thing to Sky. Um the government basically said you can't own more than X amount of companies, etc. because which is the idea of competition. Um so we're very lucky that we have organizations like the CMA, the Competitions Market Authority, because they can come in and if they see unfair practices of um you know market manipulation or um competition corruption, they can come in and use their powers to, to find companies and, you know, say, so, you know, you, you will create unfair competition. So I said, yeah. Didn't they, um, didn't they find that with, because Sainsbury's was going to merge with Asda, yeah, Asda yeah, or someone. Was, and, and then um, I believe the competition of the authority in charge of obviously that regulate, regulating the market effectively said no because they're going to hold a ridiculous percentage of the market and that then like you say it gets rid of that competition which is sort of the uk example absolutely yeah, we, we've got really good regulations in the uk regarding this i mean th these type of laws would never really be passed here um and the farmers union is really really powerful in the uk um but yeah if we go back to the kind of the original point where you know the, the awareness has been raised and people's eyes are watching uh, India. And I know that, you know, for instance, um, who's the PM for candidate? Justin Trudeau? Trudeau yes, um, Trudeau. Mr. Trudeau. But Mr. Trudeau, he's been very, very critical of India in the past uh, five or six years. And um, obviously, I think majority of his cabinet does have a few, you know, Sikhs in there or people from in of Indian heritage. And uh, they very much do discuss, you know, India's politics within their own parliament. And it's been raised by uh, the leader of the NDP, um, uh, not Gurratan Singh, the, his, his older brother Gurmeet Singh. I think they raised this issue about, you know, the, the, the suppression of freedom of speech going on in India right now. And now what I'm really disgusted about is Rihanna hasn't voiced her opinion about what's going on. She just simply stated, why aren't we talking about this? Which is, which is, which is a sensible thing to say and do. We should be discussing this. But what's happened is she's been retaliated by people, you know, saying boycott her music. Um, yes, and not yeah, just death death threats, rape threats like that as well. And, and they were sending her pictures of when she was beaten up by her then kind of a partner, Chris Brown, you know, with a, a black and bruise and saying, you know, this is going to happen to you again. Absolutely disgusting for, for her. All she was doing was talking about, um, you know, just just raising the issue of having a discussion. And what you need to um, contextualize this in is think about this. This is Rihanna is a um, external international superstar. If she is facing this violence, what do you think the um, under underpowered individual Indian citizen suffers as a result of raising their voice with these concerns? 
Uh, absolutely. And and I know that um, Rohit and I have discussed on previous podcasts about um, kind of fake news. And India, and I, I would say Indians in general, are very good at circulating fake news. You know, I'll, I'll get... So, I'll, I'll, I'll get a message from you know, my cousin and say, oh, look, look what's happened. And I, I look at the photo and the, in the context of it, I said, the, the photo doesn't make any sense with the caption. I was like, anyone could have put a caption on a photo and they've believed it. And then now there are these, you know, news articles coming out that saying that Greta Thunberg is uh, an orphan of a Kashmiri Muslim couple. And she's been funded by Pakistani militants to infiltrate, you know, um, Indian politics. And people actually believe this. And it's honestly, it goes back to another point that Rohit and I make that the, 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 the war is on social media, um, all about interference with, you know, political debates and discussions. And that's where people's opinions have, have been swayed. And that's where um, the, the kind of the battles are going to be won. Yes. And as, as, as the, everyone is aware of um, the Indian army, um, so the Indian, the Indian government's army of online bots and uh, many disinformation wings that have been used to sort of uh, flood any sort of post or any anything critical of the regime is flooded with these sort of BJP IT cell um, bots that say the same thing over and over and over again. And um, in response to the sort of Greta Thunberg um, uh, matter, did you notice that... Um, even some states were uh, raising criminal charges against Greta. It's insane for a, a, a was it an eighteen-year-old environmental activist is being charged is having a criminal charge faced against her for um, was it sharing a Google Docs toolkit um, document which contains hashtags on how to support the farmers' movement. Yeah, and then isn't there that um, someone edited that document and they've been taken hostage? They've been taken. They've been arrested. Absolutely. Or something? So there's a. Um, so she Indian is woman. a 21 year old um, Indian sort of South Indian activist um, who has who ha- has been um, charged with a crime of sedition um, in response to editing that toolkit. And for people who don't know, sedition is a um, law which was passed during the um, colonial times of India. And it sort, of, it sort of means that you're going against the, the regime and has a um, sentence of up to life. So for editing a Google, docu- Google Docs document, um, she is facing life imprisonment. And I think I just want to put it out there in context to anyone that's listening. India passed a law recently that said, you know, if you grope a minor who's wearing clothes, it's not considered sexual assault. Um, so you get off scot-free um, if, if that's the evidence presented. So just want to put the context out there of the, um, you know, if you speak against the government, you know, you can get potential life imprisonment. Um, if you sexually assault a child... Um, if their clothes are on, uh, you get off scot free. And you, this baffles me. Like this just absolutely baffles me. The Indian sort of legal system is um, sort of needs reform, and it really needs um, to be reviewed. And if you go back to the um, the UN human rights um, articles. Article 8 states that everyone has the right to an effective remedy by a competent national tribunal for acts of violating the fundamental rights granted him by the constitution or by law. And and this in itself, I'd say, has been breached on numerous occasions by by the Indian justice system, um, not just by um, passing these ridiculous sentences, but the 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 procedure in between where you're arrested and then you're never seen again and um the whole process of um uh, just put, keeping you within jail without charge whilst they're the police are somewhat reviewing your case it's a complete injustice massive yeah and we, we know india has uh, a history of this uh it's going on right now with the uh, uk national uh Juggy singh who's arrested and has been arrested for a couple of years now without charge. Um, the, the, there's, um, you know, 
accusations out there of torture, confession uh, made falsely um, under to- torture and duress. And um, it's bizarre because when um, who is the Sikh MP for Slough? Is it T- Taramjit Singh? Tan Desi. Yeah. Yeah, Tandesi, yeah. So he, he raised this issue in Parliament about the um, freedom of uh, speech and the violence against the, the, the peaceful farmers protesting. And uh, Rhys Mogg basically just stood up and said, yeah, we've had a chat with them, um, but we uh, value our trade relations more than what's kind of going on in the country right now. So it goes to show that a lot of countries out there have try to say something but they 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 value economic and trade relationships more than kind of human rights they it's this is a, it is a problem with the international community in itself uh, what i was um, interested in and at the moment um a lot of people always rely on the un to sort of uphold the peace and there's been so many genocides so many injustices where the un have just sat by and, and done nothing uh, because of the sort of influx the difference of power because we have to admit these bigger countries like india um have a lot of um a lot of power and to make them accountable is difficult for the international community whereas it's quite easy for you to make a smaller less um less more inferior country and comp- uh comp- sort of accountable so it's it's a real it's just one of these issues with the way the world works and if this is the way we want to accept it then do nothing but otherwise we really need to consider as an international people if this is how we want to progress as a society yeah but my question then my question is how how does one do that without fear of um obviously torture and everything like that that you've mentioned how does one effectively protest and speak their opinion or raise a matter of concern without fear for effectively their life and this is the sort of million dollar question for the international community um because you can see the any any form of protest as in with india has been um been shot with accusations of being anti-national as being terrorists uh, looking to break up the country so these labels have been thrown around quite uh, quite readily and the sort of the other sort of question in relation to this is how can you how can you peacefully protest against state violence i know there's a doctrine of self-defense but how far does would would um, an individual be able to argue that when the person throwing the violence at you is the state and i think one of the aspects we have we have to do um what as us sort of diaspora within sort of outside of um, India and in sort of the Western countries where there is more accountability than these these other countries is use our platform to account and document these abuses. Even if we can't do do much at the time, we still need to document um, to sh- to show you because you never know within the future these powers arise and fall. And by that point, you can make them accountable. Well, you know, you know, one of the one of the awesome things I've just seen recently was um, there was a debate and a motion passed in the UK Parliament about whether the country now now that we're out of the EU, whether we can whether we should do trade with countries that have been accused of causing uh, genocide. Um, the, the the House won, so Parliament won, but when it ascended to the House of Lords, they rejected it meaning it has to go back for further debate. So it's, I mean, I I think they're only lost by a small margin, I think 33 votes, but it has been recognised, you know, by a a large majority that they don't want to do trade um, with, you know, countries that have been accused of genocide. And if if we look at uh, the Prime Minister of India, um, Nahindra Modi, is that that Nahindra, right? That's his name, Nahindra Modi. He was chief minister of Gujarat, and he and he oversaw extreme uh, violence and genocide against the Muslim population within Gujarat. Now, for many years, he was barred uh, from entry into the United States. But then, when he ascended to head of state, 
um, that was cancelled and, and he was allowed in. And uh, he came to the UK a few years ago and he was met with some you know, hostility protests um, because essentially he represents a right wing uh, nationalist party. Um, and you, you can you can see, you know, the, the, the right wing nature of kind of, you know, them trying to suppress the protest. But moving on to kind of social media again, um, we've seen a lot of silence as well from influential people. Um, so I don't I don't know if you know this. I heard this a few years ago, but someone like uh, that pop star Taylor Swift, she has so many followers, loyal followers, that she remains apolitical. She doesn't give political views because that would sway a lot of her followers to which way they should vote, etc. Um, so it, it just goes to show how much power they hold over a large you know, population that follow them, that admire them, that look up to them. Um, in India, Bollywood stars are seen as gods among you know the humans, and um, but they've remained either silent or they've come with a rhetoric that neither supports or um, defames the government. They just say we need to remain united. This is an internal issue and policy. We don't need outside interference. Um, I, I I think these people are you know they, they don't stand on any truth and they've just essentially doing as they're told to keep in checked by the government essentially absolutely and this this sort of falls under the um aspect of the freedom of speech because if you let's let's give them the benefit of that i see if there's any sort of sort of duress on the celebrities what would be the response to them if they did pull out a message that was um dissident of the um of the regime um, we've seen with some of these celebrities who've, who've been sort of attacked, like Diljit Dazanj, who has been actively speaking um, in, fav- in favour of the protesters. And he has been sort of a target for for the sort of um, the government machine. So could you sort of say, oh, it's a sort of personal thing that they're, they're worried for their own safety? Or is it, you, you could actually argue the other way and say, well, they might even have some sort of benefit from staying in line with the government and some sort of favors. Absolutely, but I think you know it, this is the thing. Like, if someone like uh, Sachin Tendulkar, who is admired, loved by everyone, you know, he, you know, cricket to them is um, everything, and he is the god of cricket. If he came out in support of the farmers, I think that will put a lot of people in a like a difficult spot because they love him on one hand, but then on the other hand, um, you know, they they probably don't want to say anything bad against him. Um, but but then again, we don't know how much influence the government has on him, and vice versa. Mm. Um, but it's it's certainly um, true of um, you know c- celebrities and uh, kind of influences at, without outside of India. They can obviously voice their opinion without getting you know physically abused uh, as much. But you know it depends on how much they actually pay attention to the social media, whether they have um, like a management company that handles their instagram or twitter so they're kind of shielded from a lot of that abuse uh, etc but I, I i mean one guy i've totally 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 lost respect for is uh this guy called Sadguru. now a lot of his videos online you know he talks about truth and mysticism etc but you know what he came out with was just like you know just just make you think that he's just a government puppet in a sense as you say um if you if we look at this in the philosophical sort of the ethical uh, perspective of this issue ethically can can someone stand there and sort of support this the fact that people have been out there protesting for this many months by the way these, these are old men as well as young people um who've been sat outside have been dying as a result of these protests and there have been evidence of violence used against these protesters ethically can you really ignore all that's going on as as a sort of reasonable person, can your conscience really make you sit there in silence? Really, as as what is the sort of the ethical the ethical saying that staying in silence? Really, are you really you, you're allowing these events to sort of continue? This is this is is this is my bugbear yeah. of the whole thing. Is like, and I messaged Phil earlier today because. I put something out there, probably a little <laughs> bit controversial, <laughs> but 
that's that's just what it freedom, is. Freedom of speech, bro. Freedom of speech crumbles. But like this, like I said, this is my bugbear. But before I get into that, I just want to say, if we're saying, or if the discussion is around it being the government's fault, what alternative is there? What what do the other governments propose? Like the other opposition oppose? What do they think of the whole situation? Is there a potential that maybe whatever this party that is currently in power stating and the laws they're imposing? Is there a potential upside to it? What is this? Is me playing devil's advocate. So, what is what is the opposition and what is the other side to it? Like, could it be viewed as a good thing? So, if you talk about from an investment perspective, um, it would seem as a good thing because you, the a free market can invest in Indian commodities and Indian um, agriculture. And when these big corporations come in and they take over, then you can buy the shares and that will increase money for the wealthy. So it comes down to considering whether, like with the stock market, whether the, the amount of money the, the super rich own is a success or whether the amount of money the common man owns is a success. Okay, and then what's the... What is the opposition party saying? What is their views on it? It, it would be opposite, right? If they're the opposition party. <laughs> well, yeah, but not necessarily. Because you see, yeah. say, for example, we use the UK. Um, we look at Labour and Conservatives, for example. You've got two, I say, two very differing parties. They're both sent. They're both relatively central in their in their political ideologies. Um, if we were to say, for example, Corona, realistically, Labour would have done absolutely nothing differently. They will probably they're probably agreeing. They agree with the route taken. So obviously, national lockdowns, things like that. What they, there's an agreement. They understand what's going on. They understand why things are being done. What is the opposition the difficulty party saying is, over there? Um, there is no real opposition. The way the Indian state works, the these fundamental problems are with the the state machinery. It's it's been a problem um, since independence, really, because the Indian state has not really uh, democratized. It's just been the change. The sort of the keys have been handed over to a new ruler. It's been a change of ownership. You've got all these crazy laws that were in place um, since the British were ruling India. And you have to think, what were the intention of these these rules of, of the colonial India? Were they to empower the common man to make sure each citizen is equal? No, they were to benefit a ruling class of people um, and to ensure that the, the natives were kept suppressed. For example, the use of these... Um, colonial rules the sedition laws is clear evidence that these problems of colonialism still exist and because of these um historic problems within a post-colonial world it's not it's not as easy saying what would the opposition do the sad reality is the opposition will probably be moving these sort of laws in place as well and it's the common man and the people who are suffering are sort of speaking out against this system now unfortunately Yes, you go on. So is so so is there no representative of the common man, or is there a lack of a opposition in this case? So, so, so I think I think the two main parties in India opposition. are BJP and uh, National New National Congress, or something like that. Um, I think New National Congress have been in power prior to two thousand fourteen for the past like uh, like fifteen years. I think BJP were in power in the late eighties, and I think maybe well, in the, Congress. <laughs> Congress, yes. Um, so yeah, I think yeah. Since it's um, independence from the British in forty-seven, I think Congress has been overall majority ruling party. I don't know what swayed the majority of India to vote more more for a um, right-wing nationalist ideology. Um, you know, I'm not sure what the BJP can provide. But I mean, you got you got to look at the, the thing is you got to look at the track record of their policies. 
it's absolute madness. Like, do you remember when Mordi decided uh, that corruption was caused because of the denomination of the banknote? He gave people four hours' notice to change their 500 rupee banknote. And, you know, people were lining up for banks, all the cash was gone, and the money became absolutely worthless overnight um, because, you know, the, the, probably a lot of them kept it at home or in, in, in their um, other kind of um, habitats or whatever. Um, and he's and, and they, the BJP also passed a law a couple of years ago regarding um, immigration rights, um, something along the lines of, like, refugees um, could apply to become Indian citizens. However, if they were from, uh, um, uh, if they were if the, if they were of a Muslim faith, um, they would be rejected, taken to a detention center, and kind of deported back to their country of origin. Um, the, the decisions and you know leading up to their policies have all been shambolic. Um, but you know, India voted for BJP again to to take a second term. So. This is my. This is sort of my question: Is why is there? Why I don't pay much attention anymore to politics after studying it from A level. That killed me off. Um, so my sort of question is: Why? Why are they still voting for them? Then what is the reasoning? Is it? Is there corruption? Is it really? I'm not. I'm not what sure about corruption, but offering? usually, like right wing ideologies, usually offer something very extreme to a nation that's always drowning. Um, if we look back at Nazi Germany, Hitler promised a lot um, to um, you know the citizens of Germany. You know, if we're in power, we're going to do X, Y, Z, and uh, it's the same with any nationalist ideology. They'll they'll will push an agenda that's very extreme, and it kind of they they play on people's emotions. Um, a, a lot could be said about you know how Donald Trump came into power. You know, he he picked out issues that people really didn't talk about and kept it um you know politically correct he he you know he he dove he dove down and said you know these these immigrants are taking a job and and he played on the emotions of the common man in in that sense um and people were just angry and tired of what was going on and you know i, I don't i haven't read the manifesto i don't know what was promised but i can guarantee you that's that that was the kind of rhetoric that was taken with the bjp but this seems to be a um global shift in politics that um we've had before some sort of like liberal policies and things and people are now voting for more populist and like phil said more emotional uh sort of leaders it's it's not just sort of um only seen in india we've seen some sort of form even here in the uk america as phil said and also like brazil um it's all it's all about sort of cults of personalities and these sort of actions on against the status quo so it seems to be a running theme of the world at the moment that things are becoming slightly more extreme, sadly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You can see that pattern. Like, uh, you, you can take uh, Trump. Um, I mean, Republicans are generally just right of centre, but Trump was pretty pretty right. Um, Brazil, their their president is right wing. Uh, France is uh, Le Pen. I think the, uh, they're that, gaining that ground. Yes, they're going. Yeah, they they're gaining ground. I'm pretty sure. The um, Nationalist Party in Holland is gaining ground. Oh, don't forget um, about Hungary. The how their their government is extreme, right? And they've sort of passed a their some was a semi dictatorship law, Emergency Powers Act, in response to coronavirus. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Hungary as well, and you can even look at Britain uh, as well. When we voted to leave the EU, that if you look very carefully. It was one of the agenda items of the British National Party back in the 80s. Um, and, you know, th this huge vote for when Nigel Farage, you know, his UKIP party, who are considered right wing, um, he got a lot of support. Um, he headed the campaign for leave the EU. And, uh, and obviously, you know, by a very small margin, um, the UK decided to leave the EU, which is a very right wing kind of ideology. And you, you can see that shift. Like good we said, coming out throughout throughout the world because it's kind of like people are coming out of the show. I'm like, yeah, it's okay to vote this way. But um, if, if okay, so if we if we take it back to the farmers' protest, if peaceful protest doesn't work to revoke the laws, um, 
what do you think can actually stop or prevent these laws from being properly passed? Because one of the um, solutions for the time being that uh, BJP have given is to suspend the laws for 18 months. I don't know what that could uh, hope to achieve, um, maybe to make the protesters go away so there isn't a bad eye on India you know, in the current climate. Um, so what do you think can make these laws go away? What do you think can make the government change their minds? It has to be people, people driven. It has to come from the people, unfortunately. So it's the people who vote and they will need to show that with their mass voting. And as we've seen with these protests, it's what has been the largest protest in history, 250 million. These people need to keep the pressure on their government. They need to keep their government accountable. And the way the way they do that is um, use use their power of numbers to protest, keep protesting. Um, and you can even show people the value of these farmers with as they're the they're the people who feed the nation. So if you're if you're bankrupting these people, you're going to make the nation go hungry. So they may need to have some sort of um, civil disobedience movements, which are completely legal to do within a democratic society and put up some more pressure to allow these their democratic processes to to work because what we've got to remember these laws weren't passed um using the the actual democratic procedures they were rushed through during this um uh these the coronavirus uh, sort of um troubles and now we're seeing this situation because even the farmers agree that reform is needed um, as we've seen before, a lot of lot of the um, community have been have been critical of um, how hard it is for farmers to live within India for the past the past um, sort of decades. There's been a rise in farmer suicides, lots of debts. So the system does need reform. However, it needs reform with the consultation of those farmers, not in absence of those farmers, and something being forced upon them, which they know will not benefit them. I mean, this is this is the thing that we're we're talking about because Rohit and I are basically saying that the Indian government can pretty much do whatever they want. However, you can't get away with that here. Now, if we cast our minds back to 2019, uh, towards the like October November time, Boris Johnson suspended Parliament for three weeks, um, and during that time, the debate for the brexit bill would have been thrown out and th- there was a legal challenge in the high court and it basically said that boris lied and they had to bring the parliament back to session to discuss the brexit bill now i just feel india don't have that accountability um if, if we look at the u.s politics there were suggestions that because donald trump lost the vote um he was pretty angry and whatever but he said he wasn't gonna he, he wasn't gonna um relinquish power but then, you know, the, the, there was word that, you know, the Secret Service would physically remove him from office because they followed the Constitution, like they, they followed the democracy and laws. I just feel like India won't do that. I just feel as much protesting pressure from the outside, they just they will push through with these laws, which is a scary thing. And what you've got to remember is this, it, it comes down, as I said uh, before, the issue is with the the whole state machinery. This is this is a continuation of the colonial era way of governance of these people. These people aren't being governed by a constitution that treats them equally. It's being treating them as um, sub as uh, commodities, really, um, for use to empower those in power. And until they challenge these foundations and reform them to actually meet the standard of being the largest democracy, the only the only way they they can do this is with their numbers. Again, they have to use their numbers to carry on this protest and move to more democratic means of protest of civil disobedience, and not just within their sort of the the northern states and in Delhi, but show that this is an actual united movement throughout all the states. There's a billion people within within India, and these people need to fight for their livelihoods. Uh, Rohe, what do you think? could be done to prevent the government from passing these farm laws? I think it's a case of consultation, like you lot say. I think it's a case of consultation, um, adequate thought process, but I think there's also they need adequate scrutiny, which from 
what you guys are saying sounds like what's missing because here we have an opposition we have the, the opposition will scrutinize everything won't they whereas it doesn't sound from my understanding what i've been listening to that that is present there yeah i mean it just seems to me sense. that in the uk that the, the high court or the supreme court remain completely objective to um any decisions made um that go to, to, to it for, to, for for its cases to be reviewed like so for example Boris Johnson is the Prime Minister if he passes a certain law or he does something it can be scrutinized and he can be held to account like I feel that um, Modi could become or could turn BJP into a one uh, party um, kind of state and that whatever he says goes and there will be no more um votes or elections because he is the supreme leader i just feel like india's in that position uh, for him to kind of declare that and it'll be impossible for him to, to to remove because um i i honestly think there are only two ways really to um uh go against these farmer far laws one is obviously what could be said civil disobedience second is hit and where it hurts and where it hurts is uh, uh um Monetary wise, um, if the farmers stop moving their grain or withhold their grain, their taxes, that would bring the central government down to their knees. So do it from an economical point of view. Do it from the language, the only language they understand, which is money. The but what we've seen from the past, and this is the sad reality, is as soon as they make do those actions the state will respond with extreme violence. And as we've seen, um, they will kill, they will massacre massive groups of people if it does interfere with anything to do with the centre. Um, I think what the Amnesty International, I found a quote I think is very relevant to this, uh, which sort of goes to the heart of the problem, where they state, we have seen an alarming escalation in the Indian authorities' targeting of anyone who dares to criticise or protest the government's repressive laws and policies. The crackdown on those amendment acts still hasn't ended, while new efforts to quell the anti-farm legislation protests have taken shape. The, crush, the crushing of dissent leaves little space for people to peacefully exercise their human rights, including the right to freedom of expression, association and peaceful assembly in the country. Yep, they, they, they said it hit the nail right on the head there. And um, yeah, I, I don't know how long these protests will you know continue on for because i think i think the farmers basically we will not stop protesting until all these laws regarding the farmers reforms are completely rescinded and uh, essentially we're brought to the table to have a proper discussion about what we actually want yeah because both both parties are playing hard hardball as as you've seen these farmers have said we're 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 here for the long run we we either get we either go home um with these laws um, repealed, or we go home in coffins. Absolutely. So, um, I want should we bring it back on to the bit that we sort of skipped, being the social it. media bit? Yeah. So, um, my sort of my gripe, as I said, is in the past we've had. BLM, which absolutely everyone got on board, and rightly so. Everyone got on board and protested their way, didn't they? They did the the black screens on Instagram. They shared it. They were posting everything. They took a stand, as everybody should, because you have the sort of platform available to do that, to support someone or a race, don't you? You have that ability to do so here. So why would you not help them? Why then when it's in there in India, why is there now, why is no one supporting it other than Indian people? I think it comes down to the awareness aspect as well. Um, as we have seen, there are people outside of the Indian diaspora who are, supporting this there's some quite um high profile celebrities rightly so who've 
really put their necks on the line uh, with this. And what what I just want to elaborate on is the fact that just supporting um, a movement has put them in like so much danger. It just just think about how the people in the on the ground, the actual um, Indian citizens, feel when they raise their voice. Um, so I'm I'm hoping that um, people will raise their voice when they when they hear it. But do you think there is some element of selfishness where they feel like it doesn't impact me personally, so I don't really want to know about it? But but this is my point. Did BLM affect them personally? Yes, it's, it's a really really interesting uh, question. What what was it? it but I think it's because what we saw with with this the triggering moment, it really hit, hit your conscious when you saw George Floyd um, being murdered. It really hit hit your hit my soul, and thinking that element of injustice um you there was nothing but supporting um this movement and i think we may until we have our sort of george floyd moment in india people may not want to sort of stand up against this yeah so like i said i i think everyone did the right thing in getting on the george floyd that everyone did their bit everyone got on board and used their platform to help and support people my issue is everyone's now aware of what's going on. What is stopping them from doing the same other than obviously that George Floyd moment? What is, uh, I, what I just don't think it was in the mainstream happen? enough. Um, and I think it's an issue where because America is seen as like a, like you, like it's weird because like, I think a lot of people think that, you know, when all these genocides happen in far right countries or developing countries, they're kind of like, oh, that's kind of expected or, you know, there's always trouble in that country or um, it's like um, Myanmar, Burma. Recently, the military did a coup, right? And they arrested the uh, female uh, prime minister. Um, um, it was in the news for one or two days, but no one really raised their voice because the, in those type of countries, those things just happen all the time. Military coups and um, kind of revolutions and, you know, dictatorship takeovers. But I think when something like that happens in a country where it's not expected to happen, it gets more put on the radar. Um, you know, if we, I mean, you know, if we look at Saudi Arabia, they still carry out beheadings. Well, why aren't we talking about that? You know, it's... It, exactly yeah this is what this is my issue it's like we have that position available to support again everyone. it comes down to Why the, that not being um, the way the world power and the way how how power influences decisions if you look at the uh, un for instance um there have only been a, a handful of cases that have prosecuted people for uh, genocide and these selective countries have included rwanda uh, Bosnia-Serbia war um, and that's sort of mainly mainly yeah, there's a complete handful of countries and you think about the power of these countries like Rwanda what what can they do on the international stage nothing whereas you have these big huge players like if we look back to the British Empire they've caused genocide of many countries um, even post World War II with this sort of concentration camps within Africa there's been no sense of accountability there um unfortunately it's it is the powerful um are dictating what what is ethically right so unless these countries become economically poor or less influential it's going to be difficult to demand any sort of accountability from the international stage unless the people raise their voice loud enough but yeah, I, I, I get what Ro, Rohit's saying in a way because, um, you know, in, in Myanmar, the Rohingya Muslims are being heavily persecuted, uh, tortured, killed in their thousands. And uh, th there's also this same issue going on with uh, particular regions within China because the Chinese government doesn't want Islamic influence uh, within Chinese culture. So they've created these kind of uh, concentration camps. And, well, re education uh, centers. Yeah, officially. the re education centers, as they call them. But Rohit knows this more than anyone else. Uh, so, Ozil, Mesut Ozil, he uh, spoke up against this. 
Uh, so, so what happened there, Rohit? Yeah. So, my understanding of this is, as purely as an Arsenal fan, is Ozil spoke up because I think this happened. This has happened twice to him. He spoke up against something to do with the German national team or something like that first, and that got him kicked out of the national team. But then he also spoke up about what's going on in China. And obviously, Arsenal board, as far as I'm aware, were trying to do deals with China at that time to to get to bring football to China and do things like that to generate more revenue. Obviously, Ozil spoke out about the issues going on there. And coincidentally, he's then blacklisted from the squad. Mm. See what he I was mean? cancelled, basically. He was really? a bit suspect. And then, that, and then you know, yeah. he obviously has, you know, being in the UK, he has that ability to, you know, voice his concerns, etc. But that essentially caused his um, place in the team to be, you know, put under fire. However, um, I think footballers are told under contract that they're not allowed to display any forms of political support whilst, you know, playing uh, football. And I think that includes, you know, voicing your concerns. So it becomes pretty tricky when you're under contract and you have a moral obligation to speak out and say something. Um, but, you know, hats off to him. You know, he, he spoke up against what was going on. Um, and again, like I said, it's like majority of, let's say people that we know from our own community and culture, they will speak up and raise awareness about the farmers' protests in India. Um, but more than likely, you know, they probably won't speak up and say something about, you know, the, the, the Rohingya Muslims being persecuted in, in Burma, because I feel that it's it, it hits home when it's something that affects you closely or if it's um, related with your own people or with your own culture. Yeah, I get that. And I think that's probably where the thing is. I think everyone should be getting on board and maybe this is just me but I think everyone should be getting on bo- involved in addressing these issues because if if everyone gets involved it makes it a lot easier to action doesn't it it's like it's like Wall Street versus Reddit like we discussed last week <laughs> absolutely and it just shows like with with the Wall Street with with other um sort of movements it does come down to power power to the to the people really if the people put enough pressure on the system or a certain issue it will get spoken about like we're looking at um sort of use the example of the reddit thing the common man took on these massive hedge funds and caused them complete panic um, and that caused sort of lots and lots of media um output and media stories in regards to that so it's for people if they want their movement or their issue to be heard, they have to put that pressure on society and with external groups. And once that pressure mounts, um, it it does lead to some form of action. Absolutely. Well, I think all three of us will be keeping a close eye on the farmers' protests and what the government will do with the laws. And maybe we'll come back to this uh, podcast to discuss what's happened kind of six months down the line. Yeah, exactly. And um... I say we're just discussing a topic, and we're no, we're by no means politicians or anything like that. We are just absolutely three idiots having a conversation. (laughs) But before we go, Gubs, you know the rule. Does he know the rule? If you were to have a dinner party, yep, with three people, it could be anyone, dead or alive, fictional, non-fictional. So who are you inviting? A bit of a backstory. I actually had this uh, question in a couple of assessment centres, uh, some jobs. So I always give my classic um, <laughs> exam. My classic answer is um, Winston Churchill, Stalin, and Hitler. Uh, <laughs> reason being that even though they are of opposing ideologies and sort of opposing military powers, what would be fascinating to know is under the terms of under a sort of um, a dinner party setting, whether their views and their sort of ideas actually mirror one another and they actually have more in common than they first believe or being less cynical, whether they could actually work out their differences through the setting of a dinner party. 
Not bad. Not bad. That's probably the quickest <laughs> answer I think we've ever had. Pre-prepared. <laughs> yeah, but it's been an interesting conversation to say the least. So um, <laughs> thank you for coming on, Gubs. Really appreciate it and hope you've enjoyed it. Is there anything no, you want to say? Thanks for inviting me on. Before and we wrap up. Yeah, hope to be back again soon. Brilliant. Well, in that case, we will wrap up. So we've been the One Salty Grape podcast, joined by Gubsy Malone. And we will catch you next week, Sunday, 5pm, for the next episode.